A warning before we start. There is a brief description of an assault in today's episode, Court of Memory. In April 2013, I led a workshop for the Moth at the Innocent Network Conference. This workshop was unlike any other I'd led before. It had usually been for executives, to give them pointers on how to become better storytellers. But for this one, I had to tell exonerees who had spent on average 16 years in jail for a crime they didn't commit, that they had five minutes each to tell their story. I sat down at the table and I said, you know, we're here to help you tell your story. And the time constraints that we have are unfair. So I'm going to ask you to bear with me and play by these rules, which are arbitrary, and see what happens. And there was one guy sitting next to me. He had a beautiful fedora, and he was in a suit. And his leg was shaking because I could hear the change in his pocket. And his hand shot up, and he says, I'll go for it. So I said, okay, let's hear what you have to say. And he says, when I was exonerated, I spoke to every news media outlet there was, Fox, NBC, CBS, 60 Minutes, and I was only afraid once. And I said, why? What was the circumstances of you being afraid? And then he said, it was in a room full of high school girls. A group of students under their teacher were studying his case specifically, and they'd written this heartfelt letter inviting him to come to their school to speak to them. And he said, when I got the letter, I was really taken back. I I kept reading the letter over and over again, and I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to go in front of those girls. So I didn't write back right away. I waited a couple of days and then a week. And he says, and then I finally wrote them back and said, I'll come to your school and I will tell you my story and answer any questions that you have. And he said that, you know, he was was in the hotel just like the morning of that that day when he was going to speak to the class. And he was putting on his tie and putting on his jacket, and he was kind of visibly shaking in the mirror. Uh, he couldn't even kind of really tighten his tie. And he's like, this is ridiculous. It's why am, why am I so anxious? And when he arrived at the school and he stood up in front of two rows of girls, it was 15 girls total, in their school uniform. He said, I had a lawyer who was with me the whole way, and I had all these people wanting to know my story as soon as I was released. And I never felt like any of them believed me. I never felt like any of them truly thought I was innocent. Suddenly I was in a room full of people who truly believed in my innocence. And it was overwhelming. And it was the only thing I'd ever truly wanted. And here it was. And as soon as he revealed to us why he was so nervous to speak to them, the men in the room just all just shook their head and just groans of acknowledgement and just said, that's it. Like, that's it. And for me, it was just the, you know, there's the 18 years you spend in prison, there's the wrongful conviction, and then there's the release. And what stays with you 
is this sense of being blamed and carrying something that was never yours with you until someone can take it away or you can let it go. I just can't remember. And I remember. can't remember. This. I remember even. I do remember he said this. He said. Those stories were the essence of was like what it was to be alive. It was heaven. Can you trust that? My name is Nathan Brown. I'm Alexander Reed. You know, I spent 17 years in the penitentiary, and I'm doing an interview with Terrence. And hopefully y'all listen, y'all pay attention, and learn something from it. Nathan Brown, with the help of the Innocence Project, was exonerated for a crime he didn't commit. He served 17 years of his 25-year sentence before DNA evidence cleared him and led to the arrest of the real perpetrator. If I put too much energy in where I come from, then I ain't going to never go nowhere. It's just like a pressing the rewind button and the play button at the same time. When you remember when we were small and we used to press the rewind button and that play button at the same time, we just strain that tape. And when we get that tape out, the tape stretched thin, 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 we'd have messed that tape up. And that's how life is. If I continue to think about what was going on in my life four, five, six years ago when I was in penitentiary and what happened to me 17 years ago, then I ain't gonna know what's gonna happen with me five years from now because I'm gonna be spending too much energy on 17 years that's already gone. And I'm just trying to just move forward in life, period. You know, I'm just trying to move forward in life. On the evening of August 7th, 1997, Nathan Brown was at home where he lived with his mom, stepfather, daughter and two nephews. He was 23 years old. On that evening, around midnight, a 40-year-old white woman who lived in the same apartment complex was looking for a parking spot. When she walked into the complex, carrying her heels, out of the corner of her eye, she saw a man rush toward her and attack her from behind. He tried to pry her legs open, rip the front of her dress, and bite her neck. He was black, had on a black pair of shorts and no shirt. She hit him with her heels, and the man ran off, taking her purse. She chased him toward the gate of the complex, but then lost sight of him. He just disappeared. Two police officers arrived shortly after the attack, and she gave them her statement, which included a memory of her attacker having black shorts, no shirt, and strong body odor. The security guard at the complex directed the police to Nathan Brown's apartment. He and Nathan had had problems in the past. 30 minutes after the woman reported the attack, the police arrived at Nathan's apartment. I was inside. I was I was just going about my day, actually about to go to sleep. I had to, you know, went through my day already, you know. I went to the store a couple of times, you know, play with my daughter, you know, kick around my nephews. Uh, I guess about maybe 12.30, 1 o'clock, you know, the police knocked on my door. His mother answered the door, and the police told her that there had been a disturbance in the complex. They wanted Nathan to come outside for identification purposes. Nathan was in his room, trying to put his daughter back to sleep, with his two nephews already asleep on the floor. You know, I agreed to go outside for identification purpose. 
I know I ain't do nothing. So I was like, man, you know, come on, man, I ain't got no problem with whoever, whatever happened. You know, they're going to see me and say, well, that ain't him because I know I ain't did nothing. The police asked Nathan to put on shorts, and he picked a black pair with white stripes on the front and walked outside. They put me in handcuffs. I goes outside, and they shine a light on me. Too much on my back toward the patrol car. The patrol car maybe 12, 13, 20 to be safe, steps away from where I'm standing. Sitting inside the patrol car was the woman who had been attacked. She was trying to see if Nathan could be her attacker. I let her out the car, and she walked up to me and, you know, behind me, close enough to smell me, and she smelled me and said, you know, she smelled me, she said, that's him, that's him. I'm positive that's him, that's him. I'm like, man, that's him what? You know, she ain't saying nothing. You know, the detectives ain't saying nothing. You know, my mama started crying. My, my son ain't did nothing. You know, my son was inside. My son ain't did nothing. My son ain't did nothing. My stepdaddy, he starts bucking and cursing. And like, man, man, the man was inside. And boom, man, ain't did nothing. Boom, boom, boom. Y'all talking about this, you know? So they told my moms and myself that I was going on to the police station to take a polygraph and talk to a detective. I never took a polygraph. I never talked to a detective, you know. Uh, I stood in the holding tank for maybe 30 minutes, and they called me out of the holding tank, and the guy started booking me. I knew what he was doing, so uh, I asked him anyway. I said, man, what you doing? He said, man, I'm booking you. I said, booking me for what? He said, attempted aggravated rape and a robbery. I said, attempted aggravated and a robbery. I said, man, you white folks be tripping like that, you know. But I got tears in my eyes because I'm hurt because I know this serious, serious charge this man about to hit me with. So, uh, and it's a Caucasian female, so I know I'm about to get dealt with. In jail, Nathan tried to understand what exactly had happened. I was thinking about what happened. What happened? What happened? I knew I ain't attacked her. I wanted that to come out. But to be honest with you, man, I didn't care what happened to the lady. I just need to come from up under it. And I'm just being honest with you, man. In court, the woman testified against Nathan, certain that he was her attacker. That's the first time I heard the story of hap what happened to her, or what they say was done to her in detail. She testified that she saw lettering on her attacker's bare chest that looked like an L and an L and an E. On Nathan's chest is a tattoo of the name Michelle. An officer testified at the trial that the woman did not mention the tattoo during her initial statement, but after the police led Nathan in handcuffs to be identified. She gotta be being laid at some point because she said she see a tattoo ending in LLE. And I don't think the woman saw my chest. She came up behind me. I turned my head, I saw her, I saw her face, but my body, my whole body was never turned facing her. One of them officers had to tell her that I have a tattoo ending in LLE. On the night of the crime, when the police asked Nathan to step out of the apartment for identification purposes, they did what's called a show-up. It's an identification procedure where the police present a single suspect to an eyewitness shortly after the crime was committed and usually on the site, and then ask the witness whether the suspect is the perpetrator. A show-up is seen as valuable and practical, a tool for apprehending criminals. If the witness identifies the suspect, the police can detain the criminal right away and if the witness doesn't identify the suspect, they're free to go. 
but memory science over the last 20 years has revealed how easily the procedure contaminates the evidence. When the woman ID'd Nathan on the night of the crime, he didn't smell of strong body odor. He'd smelled of soap since he'd taken a shower that night. When she stepped out of the police car and walked up behind him, she believed the soap smell meant he'd tried to hide the evidence she remembered. Whether or not the woman saw Nathan's tattoo on his chest that night, or the police mentioned the tattoo to her later, the victim's memory was contaminated by how the police presented Nathan. He's in handcuffs, the only suspect, and she's connecting him to her memory, and therefore he must be her attacker. The trial lasted a day, and Nathan was sentenced to 25 years. The prosecution was based entirely on the victim's identification of Nathan. For the 17 years he served in jail, he maintained his innocence until a DNA test finally cleared him. When they did the DNA and they separated the DNA, the DNA belonged to somebody else that lived across the street from the apartment complex that we both lived on that was already in prison in Mississippi. And that confirmed my suspicion that she did get attacked and I just wasn't the one who attacked her. On June 25th, 2014, the prosecution dismissed the charge and Nathan was released. It's been two years of life after prison for him, and he struggles with the impulse to press the play and rewind button at once. He's moving forward, but the past, the memory of the past, is constantly present in what he's missed. You know, I believe that any man do a, a nice stint in prison is going to have some form of institutionalism. You know, it's like, I'm over-aggressive, you know, I'm over-aggressive. When I was on the inside, it caused for that. It caused for me to be aggressive, but it don't cause for that out here, but I'm still stuck in that attitude. You know, I'm still, after almost two years, still trying to make a transition to society, you know, to the life on the outside. You know, I came home to all these responsibilities. It's like, it's like coming from being five years old all the way to 40. You know, and now you living from a five-year-old, innocent at heart, to now you, everything is on you now. So much has changed out there. People don't even operate like the way they used to operate, man. They got cell phones and everything out there. None of this stuff was popping. When you left the streets, man, people still wearing beepers, man. You know, computers was just getting popular in 1997. I, I believe, I believe it's just fate, man. You know, you know, something we have to go through, man. I can't explain it. You know, I'm sorry I had to go for those many years. That was, that was a long, hard time. But I'm here now. I mean, you have to look at it like that. Why? Maybe it stopped me from doing something two years after. You know, maybe it stopped me from doing something in uh, 1999 that I would have never came home from. If you don't look at it like that, that's when you lose your mind. When you when you when you feeling bitter all the time, see when you feeling bitter all the time. You ever been mad for a long, long time, and then after you come from being mad, now you're sad because you did so much in your in the wake of your madness. Now you're sad. You shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't because you've been mad for so long, and you've been doing so much and you've been saying so much, and so now you need to calm down. And the people that are around you, they still love you, but now you're sad because you done hurt them. Why? Because you was mad for too long. So why hold on to the bitterness? Why hold on to it? It makes you do things. It makes you make irrational decisions. 
So I'm not saying it's not it's, it's wrong. Don't feel bad about it. Just don't hold on to it. Move on from it. My name is Karen Newworth. I'm a senior staff attorney at the Innocence Project, and I work in our strategic litigation unit on um, eyewitness identification. If you're not familiar with the Innocence Project, they help to exonerate individuals who have been wrongfully convicted of a crime they didn't commit. They've reported that eyewitness misidentification is the greatest contributing factor to wrongful convictions, playing a role in more than 70% of convictions overturned through DNA testing. One of the things that's been very powerful to me in hearing stories of wrongful convictions is the cases where witnesses or victims talk about what it is like to realize that their memories were wrong and that through their testimony, they put an innocent person in prison for a very long time and how devastating it is for those victims. The system doesn't help them to sort through what might be a real memory and what might be contamination or an elaboration. Probably the best known example is Jennifer Thompson and Ronald Cotton, and she was uh, raped as a college student. Jennifer Thompson, then a 22-year-old college student, made every effort to study the perpetrator's face while he was assaulting her. If I lived, I wanted to memorize everything about this person. So I began to um, pay really close attention to details about his face and his eyes and his voice and his hair and how much he weighed, the clothing he was wearing. Within two days, I was asked to come down and look at a photo array. Jennifer was presented with a lineup of photographs, one of which was Ronald Cotton's image. There's this sense that one of these has got to be their suspect, and it's my job to find him. I began to narrow it down. I could very quickly discount four of them, narrowing it down to two photographs. And I wanted to be very confident and very sure, so I took my time. And that's when I held up the picture of Ronald Cotton and said, this is the man who did this. They said, are you sure? And I said, I'm positive. And they looked at me and said, we thought that was the guy. The police confirmed her choice and validated her memory of the suspect, which is a form of contamination. Studies show that confirming feedback will not only increase a witness's certainty in their choice, even if wrong, but can also alter their memory of how they perceive the remembered events. And there was this huge relief that washed over me because I had gotten it right. Eventually, Jennifer was presented with an in-person lineup and she identified Ronald Cotton as her attacker again. But he was the only person included in both the photo and in-person lineups. And as we walked out of the room, I remember looking at the officer saying, how did I do, did I do okay? And one of the officers said, you did great, that was the guy you picked out in the photo lineup. When a witness is exposed to a suspect on multiple occasions, the suspect becomes familiar, and it can become unclear as to why the suspect is familiar which is another form of memory contamination. Do they remember him or her from the lineup or the crime? Eventually, the witness can't tell for certain and runs the risk of misidentifying an innocent person as the perpetrator. 
the trial came and she was asked to identify him and she was 110% certain and expressed that certainty to the jury who then convicted um, Ronald Cotton. That's Karen Newworth again from The Innocence Project. Ronald Cotton was convicted in 45 minutes and he served 11 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. It was only when the DNA testing excluded um, Ronald and identified the real perpetrator that she was really faced with the truth of how her memory had failed her. I can remember thinking to myself, if that's wrong, if Bobby Poole raped me and it wasn't Ronald Cotton, then maybe everything I thought was true is not true. Certainty and accuracy are at best under perfect conditions only moderately correlated. You know, certainty doesn't actually tell us very much about whether or not an identification is accurate, but both courts and juries treat it as if it's the most important factor in determining whether or not a witness should be believed. Even when the stakes are low, memories can easily become contentious because they are our version of events. What we remember was said or not said. They are our story. And if we don't have that, what do we have? People get into these huge fights about, you know, is the restaurant like on this block or on that block? Or, you know, did that happen here or there? And then it kind of gets resolved and people go like, oh, haha, that was funny. Can you believe that it got so intense? But it, do- it doesn't matter. And, you know, in the other places in the world where maybe it matters, like in sporting events, we have instant replay. We have the ability to go back. Um, I mean, one of my favorite Dave Chappelle episodes is the <laughs> is the home stenographer episode where, you know, it opens with a couple is bickering in bed about whether or not the husband said the wife is like her mother. You still said now five minutes ago that you were afraid I was going to end up looking like my mother. I didn't say that. Yes, you did. No, that's not yes, what I said. you did. You Hired said this happening to you. And they whip open the door and say, like, home stenographer, read it back. I didn't say that. Oh, no? No. Read back five minutes ago. <laughs> Janice, what are you saying, Brian? Brian, I am afraid. I just feel like someday you might look like your mom, maybe. Should I read more? Oh, no. That's it's a hilarious bit because it's so true, you know? Our memories are so poor. In our everyday lives, what we remember accurately or not rarely has dire consequences. We may wish for a home stenographer, for the ability to go back on demand, But ultimately, we accept that our memories are poor and move on. That's not an option in the court. And yet memory is as fragile and poor there as it is when we're struggling to remember where we placed the car keys. The studies, being lab studies and archival studies, show that witnesses make mistakes, I think, you know, in the neighborhood of a third of the time. If you think about, you know, would a court admit some other kind of scientific evidence with an error rate of 30%. I think many of us would say, well, that's crazy that a person could be convicted on evidence that has that high an error rate, but it's routinely done uh, in criminal cases all over the country. It presents a really difficult, thorny issue that I'm not sure the system is prepared to grapple with in an honest way. 
rape provides a very interesting example, right? For for many years until pretty recent past, oftentimes a rape prosecution could not proceed alone on the woman's word, that there needed to be some corroboration that the rape even occurred. And so we certainly don't want to say that only corroborated identifications can be valid evidence, but we also have to recognize that we're dealing with evidence that is incredibly susceptible to being wrong. To make the issue even thornier, corroborated evidence is also not as certain as we assume. I think that people still are generally of the view that if you have multiple witnesses who are misidentifying the same suspect, well, they must be right, like there's power in numbers. Well, 34% of the mistaken witness DNA exoneration involved multiple witnesses. DNA evidence and memory research from the last 20 years have exposed the high error rate of eyewitness identification. But the court struggle to accept, address, and integrate the new information to reform the weight of eyewitness identification. The law needs to embrace valid science, and that necessarily, because science is always evolving, means that the law must have mechanisms built in um, that can evolve with the science. But what if science tells us something we're not ready to hear? I've had conversations with neuroscientists who essentially argue that the distinction between imagination and memory is mostly meaningless. it's the same neurons doing the same tasks. And so the only difference is maybe strength. And if you reinforce something often enough, then memories and imagination just pretty much look identical. That's Dr. Julia Shaw, a psychological scientist. She's an associate professor and researcher in the Department of Law and Social Sciences at London South Bank University. Memory has always fascinated me, partly because I, I actually have a background in criminal psychology, and a lot of my work applies to criminal psychology. And when we see eyewitnesses, when we see victims, when we see defendants in highly emotional situations, um, their memories are just so plastic, and they can be so drastically different for the same situation. Um, and forever, I've assumed that this can't possibly just be because people are lying, because victims and witnesses, for example, don't really have any incentive often to lie. So I wanted to understand how exactly that works. Previous false memory experiments included the adoption of benign memories such as knocking over a punch bowl at a cousin's wedding, or stressful memories, such as getting lost in a mall as a child. But Julia wanted to see if she could convince participants to adopt the memory of a crime they hadn't committed. Most people told me it wouldn't work. So even half my colleagues said, there's no way it's ever going to work. I had participants come into the lab under the pretense of participating in a an emotional childhood memory study. And they knew that I'd contacted their parents ahead of time to get information about their lives between the ages of 11 and 14. And so I said to them, okay, so your parents reported two events that happened to you, both of which were emotional. The first emotional memory Julia introduced was an accident the participant had been in. The second emotional memory was the participant's run-in with the police. And at this point, the participant is sort of looking at me going, what are you talking about? I don't, like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's, I, I, I don't, I feel like I've, I don't think I've ever been in a fight. Honestly, I, 
Uh, your parents reported that when you were 14 years old, you assaulted someone with a weapon and the police called your parents. You were in, and then I list the name of their hometown. It happened in Kelowna. With, and I put in the name of their best friend at the time. You were with Ryan when it happened. So what do you remember? I'm so confused. Um... Now they're stumped and they're going, I don't remember this crime taking place. Julia would reassure them, say it's okay, that she expected people would have problems remembering, which is why she's studying emotional memories. And then she would ask them if they'd like to try a technique that helps people recover lost memories. Of course, everybody says yes. And that if they just close their eyes and follow my instructions, which is an imagination exercise, to picture the event happening, picture what it felt like to be there. So I'd like to take you mentally back to the scene where the event happened. I'd like you to relax, close your eyes, and focus your attention on trying to retrieve this Okay. So people then start imagining this event taking place from interview one to interview two to interview three, each of which were one week apart, there was a huge shift, even though we were just doing the same exercise repeatedly, in how people were talking about these imaginations that were now being accepted and were now felt like memories. At first, the participant would remember the small surrounding details, the blue sky, for example. And then they'd remember pushing a friend. And then they'd remember I pushed my friend in a park, and then she punched me in the face, and then the police were involved. So, I think the cops showed up, and we were kind of having a, maybe a, like a verb, verbal kind of fight, and then it kind of maybe got to a push. Mm -hmm. And then, at that point, there was kind of cops coming, and they were, you know, I think there was maybe three. Okay. These were richly detailed accounts. People were reporting, feeling things in the memories. They were seeing, hearing, tasting some of them. How many participants adopted memories of a crime they didn't commit? So 70% of my participants formed what I classified as full false memories. Um, so they had at least 10 details and they, they told me all about it. And yeah, we actually aborted the experiment early because we... <laughs> We're expecting a much lower success rate, and we decided that 60 people and 70% of our sample is probably enough to, to do our meaningful analysis. When I then debriefed them, <laughs> uh, you could just see their faces go, what? <laughs> what just happened? Uh, this is a false memory study. God, the first, because the, the first day I was like, I feel like I've woken up from a dream, and I'm like in some movie where I, like, can't remember these. Wake up from something and I have some huge criminal record that I just... <laughs> I know that some of them, at least a year later at my memory classes, reported, you know, sometimes I still think about this event. I think it was possibly one of the best life lessons I could have given anyone, is that, look, your memory, not just someone's memory, but you are capable of doing this. And this is a simulation. This is a safe environment where we can undo that. But in the real world, where this can happen much, much more uh, severely and with much greater consequences, like in criminal justice settings, they're now armed with this knowledge that they are capable of it, and this is how it can work, and maybe this is how I should not fall for suggestible or leading questions. According to the Innocence Project, more than one out of four people wrongfully convicted but later exonerated by DNA made a false confession or incriminating statement. 
So I work as an expert witness, so I, I'm called by usually the defense when um, they're sure that a false memory has occurred. Lawyers and courts are often not aware of how something so severe could possibly be generated through bad therapy or bad questioning. And so I come in and educate and say, actually, this isn't that unusual. And this could happen to pretty much anyone given the right circumstances. And then I look at the evidence and say, and these are the right circumstances. I think it's really important that they just understand how fallible memory is because they rely on it for everything. When I think about the role of the memory expert in an eyewitness case, what I think their greatest utility is, is giving the jury a framework for understanding that the testimony they've heard from the eyewitness is a story that the witness um, has put together based in part on his or her memory, but also based on all of this other stuff that has come in in a neutral way or maybe in a malicious way or maybe in, you know, somebody's attempt to help the witness, but that has come in from all, all these different sources and have created this mosaic that the jury needs to sort out and weigh and, you know, maybe put to the side if they conclude that there's just not enough reason to believe that the witness could actually have seen or remembered all of the things that Sherry claims to. Every year, more than 75,000 eyewitnesses identify criminal suspects in the U.S. They're a fundamental part of the criminal justice system, but studies show at least a third of them are wrong. Change, when it comes to law, is slow. But there is hope. A few courts, including the Supreme Court of my home state of New Jersey, have acknowledged the prevalence of contamination when it comes to memory and an eyewitness identification. In the case of the State v. Henderson, Larry Henderson was mistakenly identified as an accomplice to a murder. In the decision, the Supreme Court of New Jersey said, from social science research to the review of actual police lineups, from laboratory experiments to DNA exonerations, the record proves that the possibility of mistaken identity is real. Indeed, it is now widely known that eyewitness misidentification is the leading cause of wrongful convictions. We are convinced from the scientific evidence in the record that memory is malleable and that an array of variables can affect and dilute memory and lead to misidentifications. Change is slow, some would say even glacial, but it's possible. Thank you for listening. Today's episode was produced by me, Terrence Mickey, and Bart Walshaw, who also wrote the theme music, with production, research, and editing assistance from Carrie Ann Thomas. I want to welcome our new interns, Carson Briggs Frame and Samira Tazari. A big, big thank you to everyone at the Innocence Project, to Karen Newworth, and to Dr. Julia Shaw, and a special thank you to Nathan Brown and Thomas Walsh for sweating it out while they recorded their end of our interview in a car on a hot afternoon in New Orleans. 
Information on The Innocence Project and Dr. Julia Shaw's new book, The Memory Illusion, will be available on our website, memorymotel.audio. Thank you, as always, to Jerome DeRoy, Murray Nossel, and Jeffrey Yamaguchi for their support. Please write a review for the show on iTunes and reach out to us on Twitter at Memory Motel or at Terrence Mickey. For the next episode, we go back to The Wonder Years, the TV show and that time in your life of innocence and beauty before everything went downhill. What would you do if I She's not my girlfriend. This was true. Winnie Cooper was not my girlfriend. And, you know, now you're grown up and there's all these extra problems. Like, what happened? Let's go back. Let's go back to the Wonder Years. Let's go back there, you know? Maybe better go give her a big French kiss. Shut up, Queen. Hey, girls, come on over here. Oh, baby, Until next time, I can't wait to see what you find when you go back. I say I'm gonna get hanged.